the Crude Audacity Podcast. to the crude audacity podcast the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers i am Catherine mills and today's discussion is meant to provide a different perspective so many of us forget that the oil field is first and foremost geopolitical leverage and with 2020 we are seeing that across the board however many of us don't actually understand how all the players fit together so, straight out of Kuwait, the team at Revolve Advisory here to provide a global perspective, May Alzanki and Ahmad Mulajuma, welcome to the Crude Audacity Podcast. Thank you very much, Thank Catherine. You. It's nice to be there. I am so thrilled to get y'all's perspective. You know, it has been a wild year, and I will fully admit that it's kind of played out. Everyone's talking about it over here. We get it. Stuff hit the fan and no one really knows what's next. But nobody is having the conversation about how what happens in the U.S., what happens in Saudi, what happened in Russia is actually affecting the rest of the global oil patch. So I am so thrilled to get y'all's perspective. Y'all have been around the patch for such a long time. You've really seen the interactions between multiple countries. And people forget that oil is in almost every single country in the world. <laughs> so before we jump right into it, can y'all give us the story on how you got started? Really, what drew you to oil and energy? May, can you sort of take us through like how you built into the roles and responsibilities you have now? Um, so I guess I, I could start with um, with a dream. Uh, I initially wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting turnaround in terms of, um, you know, career and future. But it didn't make sense because I got a question from my dad at that point of time. If you become an astronaut, what are you going to do later when you come back to Kuwait? And um, that's a very interesting question, right? So are you going to work in NASA in Kuwait? NASA is not going to open up very time sooner here. So the oil and gas industry is the bread and butter when it comes in uh, to the state of Kuwait, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so it made more sense to go to the engineering part and um, start the career as a petroleum engineer. You know, so I finished my uh, bachelor degree and master's degree in petroleum engineering science. Um, I was attracted to the challenge that was there, um, which is a little bit different um, also as well, because the industry was more of like male dominant rather than, you know, female dominant. So <laughs> there was this a little bit of challenge, I have to admit. Oh, Funny yeah, I can do it as now, well. huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, 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 the, and the industry have evolved over the last 20 oh, yeah. years, at least, you know, the way I've seen it. So at that time, there were less and less women being in the industry as well. So it was challenging because it made more sense to have like a future and to work where uh, your country is actually operating and doing uh, in terms of business and even having job opportunities. 
uh, as well as, um, you know, there, there, there is this challenge to add value. So the journey started with a national oil and gas company. So I started with the, um, with the national part. Okay. Uh, and then I moved into um, what they call is um, the migration side. So I migrated into the investment sector oh, after okay. like five, six years. Um, I just wanted to jump out of the fence of the oil field and see whatever is happening on the other side. How do they look at these uh, blue collars and uh, <laughs> you know people who are <laughs> just full of grease most of the time and, 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 and <laughs> working in an industry that is labeled in one way or another that is yeah. like fossil fuel provider. And it was a very interesting and complimentary because uh, in the investment side, I was actually um, managing a fund to invest in the oil and gas sector. Okay. And it enabled me to see the whole value chain, not only focusing on the upstream side, but also to look into uh, the downstream, the petrochemical, which is more of the diversified approach into the energy sector. Uh, and afterwards, I've joined what I would call more of an international scene because I've worked for an international EMP company. Uh, and uh, that was taking me into merging the role that I had with KOC, which is more into strategic planning and okay. more into uh, the business planning side, as well as the reservoir engineering and, and uh, economics, because I was fond of the economic side as well. And doing investment in the oil and gas sector was very attractive. So I looked at my CV, very simple. I've looked at my CV. It looked very nice to have like what is called the M&A side, mergers and acquisitions. So I jumped in, out of the ship uh, in what they call is, um, you know, an EMP indigenous company that was um, uh, at one point in my life. And I was responsible about these activities related to the M&A. So I get to see more of um, the MENA region rather than only seeing the state of Kuwait or the Gulf region, because yeah. that's the expansion, you know, that um, you're able to look around you and, and make more value. Uh, I've done that for a couple of years. And then I looked back into the CV and I said, well, you know, energy definition is expanding. Um, so what's in the energy definition? Oh, you know, there is the renewable hub. Yeah. <laughs> so I jumped in into a renewable company. Oh, and Lord. I was doing the... <laughs> you know, I, I could claim in one way or another that I've seen segments of the value chain in, in different areas. <laughs> and it was very interesting as well because uh, the renewable segment was also interesting. It was complementary to the... Um, hydrocarbon industry because it was related to the oil field, it was related to the EOR and producing uh, a heavy oil. Uh, and then there was a point of time that I looked back into my CV again and uh, I've jumped in into the contracting segment. <laughs> and also to see as well whatever happened in the industry, you know, all back then the contracting segment was a little bit like a mystery. So you deal with equipment, you see as well, whatever changes that are happening, what are the needs. And it's, it's very interesting to see how your perspective is being changed while you're doing that journey. I, there was this point of time, I guess, that all of that had to materialize into something that you can benefit to other people as well. So over the last 20 years, when you uh, experience different kind of segments. 
And um, Ahmed is is um, is um, a colleague of mine that we met in the uh, EMP side of the business as well. So we have this initial idea that, well, you know, the most in interesting and challenging part is when you claim you are an advisor, when you claim you are a consultant, normally you get people that who are just graduates outside, you know, from the college straight to working on the advisory side. And then when they talk about lessons learned, they've never done it themselves. Correct. But, you know, we've seen, <laughs> we've, seen, we've seen all of this over the last 20, 20, um, 20, probably 23 years for Ahmed as well. And we said, well, you know, we can actually not claim. We are saying the truth by saying we've seen it to a, a certain extent all. Mm -hmm. And then we can provide the advice uh, for either the international players or the local players mm -hmm. uh, in the Gulf region or the MENA region or even internationally and, and help them to expand their business operation, uh, build their uh, operational uh, capabilities, mm -hmm. and as well um, transferring this um, image that is being taken about the oil and gas industry. It's more like Gulf. And not only that, is 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 basically it's more of geopolitical. Nobody wants to touch. Nobody wants to talk about into something that is fun and interesting, you know. So <laughs> I guess what we're trying to to do is to create a fun environment, first of all, to us, and also for our clients. We enjoy working with our clients, and we think about it in one way or another. Their problems in is actually is our joy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Is, is that what like, you tell them in the conference meetings? We're so glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> we actually we actually think about it in being in the engineering segment, and I guess it applies for the partners in Revolve because we all come in from the engineering side. Mm -hmm. We enjoy problem solving. Engineers, they like problem solving. So where other people are looking at it as a challenge, we look at it as an opportunity as well. And we become innovative in approaching it. That's where we decided to start our own baby, which is like Revolve Advisory Firm. And to kick it off outside, you know, from Kuwait, yes, definitely. But we have a reach right now uh, that is, you know, globally, even in the yeah. U.S. We had some clients from the U.S. We've worked for them. And we think we have two messages. One is to basically change that image in like, you know, coming in from the Middle East, everybody will tell you where is Kuwait in the map. You know, you come in from Kuwait. <laughs> I know, uh, you know right? <laughs> okay, you, know. you definitely will pass a geography exam right now online. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the people, when they talk about the Middle East, they think everywhere is the same. And I think we have... Um, an obligation, first of all, uh, in one way or another to say, well, it's not. Each and every co you know, country has its own specific business environment that is completely different. 100%. Um, the, other thing, you know, the other thing that I think we always, um, that was the drive for Evolve to come over, is we have the understanding of the business culture. And, you know, in the Middle East, as well as other parts of the Asian world, you know, it's very important to build that connection, not with the pandemic situation where everybody is moving, you know, towards, um, you know, being online, using and utilizing <laughs> technologies, but that um, human part and building that connections with either your clients or the business owners as well, it makes a huge impact and understanding as well. 
And that's the whole idea, how Revolt came in into uh, from like the conception in terms of idea. We've been talking about it for years and years, and then we put it online like two years ago, and here we are. And I will leave the room probably for Ahmed, you know? I love it. <laughs> and you know what's so important about that is you are talking about the oil industry, and it used to be so taboo, and nobody wanted to say what they did or where they came from or how they you know, made their money or anything like that. And now we are finding our voice. So Ahmed, please tell us how you got into oil and energy because you have quite an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I don't come from a petroleum engineering uh, degree like May is. Actually, my story is a bit different. Um, I graduated back in 99 with a mechanical engineering degree. And at that time, my only relationship with, with oil prices was what I used to pay at the gas station in the states so I just, I just knew that oil prices went up and down by what i pay at the pumps uh, you know as the gas pump um when i graduated i wasn't even planning i didn't even know a lot about the oil and gas industry my dad used to work in it but he was in the in the hr domain rather than the technical domain um, and i was planning actually to stay in the states so my, my initial plan was basically just to get my degree work in honeywell or any other um, any other of, uh, of the engineering companies that are related to my domain. But um, I came back to Kuwait for a short visit uh, after my graduation and I met um, a friend of dad's and he was asking, so what are you doing these days? And I told him I just graduated with a mechanical engineering degree and all. And he said, why don't you go and, you know, look for, uh, go and uh, try to join Slumberjay. And that was the first name I was hearing about uh, a big Goliath called Slumberjay, you know, and, and afterwards, you know, you feel ashamed that you didn't even know the name at that time. So, yeah. and <laughs> so I said, okay, so I applied, I got, I got uh, accepted in Slumberjay and then the journey started and it was a beautiful journey. You know, uh, I started with Slumberjay, I stayed with them for about four years. Um, and then I joined KOC for one year, um, and then from KOC I moved to the international arm of uh, Kuwait Petroleum Corporation, which is Kofpec. Okay. And then th that, where, uh, that was where I was introduced to the international oil and gas uh, business. So I, I, I was working in this domain in KOC as a national oil company, and then I was introduced to this big world of international oil and gas company. Uh, I stayed with Copa for about three years, and then uh, I moved to another international oil and gas company, which was a private company, uh, which was uh, Kuwait Energy, and that's where I spent the bulk of my career at that time, about 10 years in Kuwait Energy, starting from a technical engineer, and then leaving as a head of projects and operations uh, department for the whole company. So I, um, I was mainly working all in the oil and gas sector between services, national oil company and international oil company. Um, after like about 18 years of that journey and uh, mm -hmm. being very lucky to work in all these companies and, uh, and having all these experiences culminated, uh, me, May and Hashim, our third partner, we were having discussions about our, you know, our skills being very complementary uh, uh, and be being very diverse as well. And we thought, why don't we put it to use? And as May very rightly indicated, you know, we're all engineers. What we like is looking at problems and trying to crack them and trying to solve them always, you know, in, in, in a very efficient and nice and very simple way. So we incepted the Revolve Advisory two years ago and we started working two years ago uh, uh, with, uh, with clients uh, in Kuwait, in the, in the region, the Middle East, and as May indicated, 
uh, some clients from the US and we've been working now for the last two years uh, working on solving clients' problems. Y'all get to see everything. And I think that's what's so important about your team and your perspective and the conversation we're having today is because even in the States, we really only think in the lower 48. And that really just means West Texas most of the time. We don't really mm -hmm. get to think outside uh, impacts and what decisions here mean for decisions there. So take us back. You know, we're seeing the market crash. What are you guys thinking? Because y'all have a different structure over there than we do. I can guarantee you that everyone over here just went to the bar to get a cocktail. We were like, we have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but as we're watching everything fall, being a national oil company and familiar with the international companies, what starts running through y'all's head as, you know, advisors, as senior leadership, everything? Me, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I, I, I was waiting for him probably to take that question. I think what we're seeing right now is definitely we cannot claim that um, the oil in the industry is in isolation for anything. I think uh, whatever we're seeing is a market trend is something that was already going to happen, regardless of the current uh, a pandemic, pandemic situation that we're going through. Yeah, take so, that part out of it, because I think everyone understands know, COVID, but the Russia-Saudi interactions, these OPEC it was, interactions. It, it, was, it was going to happen. It was going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. So the whole pandemic situation just expedited the whole movement in the oil and gas industry. So mm -hmm. um, I remember two years ago, we were putting like some certain scenarios, and one of these scenarios is actually we think and we do believe that the oil prices is going to be under squeeze for a certain period of time, probably longer than whatever other people are expecting is because as you started in the, our conversation, this is like a geopolitical um, impacted industry. So yeah. the tension that is being taking place right now um, in the Middle East and in, in certain um, I would say part of the Middle East is really impacting the industry. However, um, I think the main thing that in the past we used to see as general trends, everybody used to talk about renewable industry, how it's going to replace the hydrocarbon industry immediately. But we've you know, seen also some trends that the slow investment that has been taking place in the renewable industry made it a little bit i would say behind probably within another 10 to 15 years yeah. to catch up really with the oil and gas industry so uh, yes uh, there is some um i wouldn't say it's a crash in the market i would say that we are heading towards um probably a semi uh recession period for some time Okay. Uh, that's that's going to be not driven by the supply demand. I don't think it's a supply demand or a commodity problem anymore. It's more about the geopolitical situation that is impacting the industry. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is the way we look at it normally with, um, you know, somebody who's living in the U.S., working in that industry with the current market crash, people will lose their jobs. And, and that's oh. something that happens, uh, you know, that's why they go to the bar, right? You know, uh. everybody is, is worried about losing their jobs. And that's because, um, you know, the small to medium-sized player, the private players are always, um, you know, worried about cutting back costs. The first thing mm -hmm. that they would think about is we need to cut back costs, we need to fire people, we need to lay off some people and all of that. 
Oh yes. But when it you know, but the the industry in the Middle East, because it's being run by the national oil and gas companies, we've seen that yes, there is some slowdown, there is some cost optimization, but it's not like a mega layoffs that happens in the industry. And we have to be careful as well when we're saying it's a layoff because you don't want to lose certain expertise. Yes, the, re the industry is reshaping. We're going towards like uh, adopting of more of technologies. Mm -hmm. um, we need different skill sets. Yes, definitely. But you don't want to lose these expertise. You don't want to have the same gap that happened back in the 60s, that happened back again in the 80s because of this migration that happened between the industries, you know? Correct. So what I'm trying to say is like, uh, we've seen that the industry from our Middle Eastern side, we didn't see that much of impact. You know, okay. there is some cost optimization, but I think the survival is going to be for the fittest. Uh, projects are still undergoing. There will be some squeeze on, um, you know, players and um, oil services, contractor margins. But I guess, you know, the industry is going to continue at the end of the day. Uh, this is going to be driven by the transportation industry, you know, still um, with the electrical cars, it takes some time uh, <laughs> to get to all of that, you know, everybody to use electrical cars, you know, and when it comes into the shipping industry, the airplanes, um, you know, all of this is still going to use the oil and gas. So it's going to rebalance, but in my, my personal view, it will take some time to rebalance again. Um, and we have to survive it. We have to stomach it. You know, we have yeah. to have the, the longer term view rather than the shorter term view. Well, I think what you said earlier about the definition of energy, I think that really plays into what you're saying right now, because to your point, it's not really alternatives and oil and gas. They all are intertwined. They've been intertwined for decades and the evolution of each also brings the others along. It's just, what does that future look like? So Ahmed, when you are sitting there, like breaking down in your head, what's happening across the globe, but from the geopolitical standpoint, we've got international oil companies, we've got national oil companies, and then we've got privates. How, I mean, today's yep. point, we're all impacted differently. So what were you seeing? Well, look, so, the, the all the oil all oil companies and oil countries depend eventually on the you know the top line depends on the oil price which is the, the, which is very much dependent uh, by on the markets the responses as you rightly said is, is different because in usually in national oil companies what you're going to be having is uh, national oil companies owned by government very much tied up by social structures and uh, rules regulations uh, localization rules that prevent them from going to the regular playbook by internationals and privates. Mm -hmm. Internationals and privates playbook, which has been you know, done in the last four or five um, uh, oil price crashes that I witnessed, was always go and uh, chop off uh, from you know, the headcounts and go, of course, uh, try to delay the, the CapEx uh, programs and the OPEX programs. Um, national oil companies will follow the same uh, playbook, save for the the headcount part especially for locals so that that's probably the major difference between national oil companies and international oil companies uh, in that sense the other slight difference is that uh, national oil companies will keep some strategic 
uh, mm. projects going because the, it's, it will, it's very um, vital for the continu uh, continuity and uh, uh, long-term uh, survival of, of, of the oil company itself. While international oil companies would go and basically just stop many uh, projects, even if they were vital because they think, you know, right now it's about cash survival and cash perseverance. Uh, so that's, that's another slight difference. Both of them would cut CapEx. You'll see that everybody in this, in this pande pandemic and this oil price drop uh, cut their CapEx and OPEX programs, but to, uh, and, and OCs are to a lesser extent than the IOCs. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that has, um, I think, the, the interesting part in, in all uh, scenarios is that the most entities or the most companies that get squeezed during this time are uh, oil field services companies. Yeah. Because <laughs> NOCs, IOCs, private oil companies, all of them are going to revert back to oil field services companies and asking for discounts and delayed payments and, 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 and. So oh, we're seeing it. Yeah. Yeah, so, and, and then that's, that's, that's what creates the problem afterwards because for the long term, and probably, Catherine, we talked about that uh, a while ago, it's very hard to run a long-term industry with a short-term uh, view. Very uh, true. It's, it's, it's very tough to run an oil and gas industry or an energy industry that goes, spans tens of years or, you know, a minimum seven to ten years for projects with a short-term view that's very much affected by a PS number or you know, a profitability number decided by an analyst on a quarterly basis. So mm -hmm. there will be always this lag. And uh, it's a problem, it's a chronic problem that the industry somehow needs to look at and adjust to. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the way it is right now. You know, all the companies are going by this playbook. Some companies are using it more than the others. The most people who are hurt by it are the oil field services companies, being being the lowest in the food chain in, in this term. A hundred percent. Do y'all think the red tape that has been built up on a global perspective throughout this industry? I know red tape for me means that I have to find time to get on my boss's calendar. Red tape for others means they might not be able to talk to different departments, different projects. I mean those lack of communication channels throughout industry, do you think that that is one of those items that's keeping us further behind and how do we mitigate that? You know, just, just a short comment on that. It's, um, it, it's, it's a very interesting situation to be in, you know? Yeah. Uh, so whatever you're describing right now in terms of red tape, I, I guess everybody is um, is going through right now. So mm -hmm. everybody is thinking about reorganizing um, their internal house. It's like the spring cleaning right now for each and every company. That's a really is, good point. <laughs> uh, you know, it is it is the spring cleaning right now. So um, you know, earlier 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 to autumn time as well. So I guess. What's, what's happening right now, um, all of the companies are looking back to their organization structure. They're looking into the segments that ha they have been in. Uh, they're looking into, um, you know, where is the part of the energy value chain that they want to be in. They're re-evaluating their strategy. Um, a lot of our clients are, right now are thinking and restructuring themselves internally they're re-evaluating their strategy. They're re-evaluating their approach. They're thinking about different strategies to mitigate um, what I would say 
the changes that we're undergoing in terms of a sector. So um, do we need to basically expand and take an opportunity? Because as we started the conversation, sometimes challenges are representing an opportunity. You know, for mm -hmm. somebody who comes in from the M&A side, you would say, hey, all right, this is the time that you can integrate the industry, buy other companies, yeah. uh, you know, merge between these companies and create a conglomerate that is able to compete even internationally. So, you know, the, everybody is looking into what did they have missed? Um, did they done uh, something, you know, because normally when you talk about strategies, everybody's talking about being in a niche. Do they want to be in a niche industry or they want to be an opportunistic in terms of capturing whatever comes on? Or they want to be in the survival mood, you know, hey, you know, we survived, um, you know, uh, an economical recession or like an industry change. And then they would think about the next expansion. But again, um, everybody is thinking of it right now as we speak, you know, everybody, the top leaders, either in the national oil and gas companies, mm -hmm. the major oil and gas companies, we've heard all of them are reshuffling their strategies either in terms of focus between the mix between the oil and gas or even, um, you know, complementing that of being energy producers rather than only like, you know, in one way or another is being described like, you know, oil and gas producers. Mm -hmm. So um, even, even the service industry has been evolving. Um, we've seen a lot of the CEOs in the industries, um, in the industry itself, are um, scratching their heads, you know, do they go right now more aggressive <laughs> and, and basically acquire more business or do they go into the repulsive mood and, and save whatever cash they have? Um, what, what is, uh, what, you know, what I see as a trend that is not helping the industry, the energy industry itself, is uh, normally this sector for it to go and, and to flourish, it would need the banking and the finance industry to be back in back, you know, hand in hand with it, uh, which is not the case. You know, they, you know, the, the banking and, and the finance segment is just very well behind. They're thinking about the risk um, and, and the assessment and, and all of that. And it's missing a lot of good opportunities. You know, that's what I would see that now it's a very interesting red tape uh, in terms of a perspective to everyone. May, you have no idea how well you just teed up Ahmed for his next question because he is going to love it. So one of the things you said was that we are we're seeing a lot of people out there. How do we acquire these companies? How do we get ourselves in there for the next uptick? How do we pivot and restructure? And the thing that I am pushing over here is that this is not just simply coming out of a downturn. This really is truly, to y'all's point, a restructure. So what does the new face of the oil company look like? And quite frankly, for those out there looking to be the new entrepreneurs, pulling together the next conglomerate and having an international company, what are you actually doing that's different than the last guy? Because right now we're in cycles that have high peaks, but super low pits. So on that. What's your perspective on the new face of oil companies, the whole industry, honestly? No, the question, the question is actually very, very interesting uh, in, in terms of what, because the news that we just got in the last month or so mm -hmm. gives you an indication about some big international companies pivoting now and going towards uh, more of a, you know, let's say alternative energies route and energy, okay. smooth energy transition. So, 
So you're you're speaking about the energy, the going green initiative that could even just be a marketing ploy for all we know at this point. Exactly. So uh, let's 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 think about this whole thing all happening and we we'll try to dissect it. Okay. In small pieces if we can, although it's a very big industry, but you have the uh, the likes of BP who just announced that they're going to be increasing their investment by 5 billion dollars a year on renewables up to, to uh, 2030 and reducing their oil and gas production by a million barrels a day by 2030. There is Shell also with their project reshape, I believe uh, that's what it's called, to reshape the company now and to focus more on renewables for the future. So, uh, and Total has also similar approaches going there. Now, when you think about it, the capital is finite. Although I know that, you know, you can, with a, with a press of a button, you could create a lot of it, but let's think that capital is finite eventually. And with, it will always chase the best opportunities available. Other companies now, uh, the other big, uh, big boys that are there on the block, they have very solid uh, balance sheets, regardless of the oil prices in the time being. They are very well poised to take the opportunities that May was mentioning just now. Uh, it is a very difficult situation because, okay, which direction should I move? Should I, as an oil yeah. company, should I go and consolidate more and be ready for the next uh for the next squeeze because with all the lack of investment that happened since 2014 till now and the lack of investment in, in exploration projects and the severe cuts that are happening right now if uh, economic activities go back to normal and then there will be a surge at a certain point we will have this mismatch again and then we'll probably again i, I always talk in probabilities there's nothing certain here unless there is you know a big uh, a big surge in, um, in technology that will accelerate the development of some uh, renewables or other t technologies, mm -hmm. there will be a gap in the market that uh, cannot, uh, you know, the, 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 current, the, the, the production at that time cannot really uh, satisfy. And at that time, the oil companies that made the bet in the time being to be ready to, uh, to take, the, you know, to take uh, the opportunity when it comes, they will be in a very good shape. Uh, so. You know, when, when you note how the, uh, some of the companies are moving, you see that this year, there are some companies who believe that this is the direction to go. Mm -hmm. Others uh, believe that, well, no, we should, we should actually wait and take and seize the opportunities and see what's available to complement our offerings, reduce our costs, um, and be there for the next, you know, for, uh, for the next uh, oil price increases and adjustments. There's one more thing that uh, sometimes, you know, Everybody talks about development of technologies, and that's very true. You know, uh, technologies develop very fast, and with the, with the current automation, AI, and all, everything is moving very, very much faster. But if we think that there will be a very much fast development in renewables, the, the acceleration of technology in renewables and alternatives and all, yes, there is a big chance that there will be an acceleration of technology developments to make it much more competitive. However, if there is also an acceleration of technology and carbon capturing and everything that makes oil and gas companies less competitive in the time being, that means that the oil and gas companies will come forward afterwards also on competitiveness uh, and being poised, being, you know, be, being the, the, the most convenient energy source in the time being to take a lead again. And as we discussed in the beginning, capital is finite. It's always going to go for the highest yield return on projects, if you remove the subsidies at a certain point, you cannot keep subsidies and everything and tax breaks forever. The industry might reshape itself again so that the oil and gas takes, takes the lead again. 
because of these changes in dynamics. I love that. So to your point, technology, that's really going to be another pivot for us. That's really going to be what we, that helps us restructure one way or the other, be it, you know, alternative energies, oil and gas. However, what we see is when projects are being picked and we see this globally, it's usually someone's pet project. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. the best project for the company or the best project for industry to give that one ahead, that step ahead, so to speak. So how do we get out of that cycle instead of chasing someone's pet project? Where do we actually invest the capital to produce the best result for said industry? I, I think, you know, to catch up in Ahmed's uh, previous point on this, um, you know, technology investment has been like um, what they call is, um, you know, the swing in most of the time. Uh, because people do invest in research and technologies, but if they're, if they're really doing it uh, only to be an innovator rather than adopter, mm -hmm. then really what we're doing is we're investing a lot in the R&D side rather than um, seeing an impact on the industry that is more of an immediate. Um, so that's very important. Do you want to be an adopter of technology or do you want to be an innovator of technology? Mm -hmm. and, and having said that, you know, in certain parts of the world, they're still thinking about uh, the EOR as a new technology, which is not the case. You know, it mm -hmm. has been there in the U.S. in Permian, in Permian Basin for, for the last 60 years. <laughs> and, 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 that, and that's, that's something very interesting because do you want to go reinvent the wheel or do you basically want to go and adopt something that is already existing? Um, so again, uh, if we want to invest in the R&D side, if this is not coupled up with taking that idea from like a concept into something that has a material impact in our industry, then uh, most of these companies and uh, these venture capital companies, they do, they do disappear after a certain period of time. And, and the investors are, um, you know, are going to be a little bit um, less tolerant mm -hmm. because they don't see any results, except if they're thinking about like, you know, they're going to flip it, sell it to a mega oil and gas company as part of their long-term business. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's very interesting dilemma right now because the capital, if you want to invest, we have to look back into the value chain and define like the quick wins, which are the most of, um, I would say, the immediate targets. Everybody is talking about uh, production optimization. So production mm -hmm. optimization is a field to start investing in. Um, we need to do uh, things more efficient uh, and with with lower cost. And yes. that does not only involve like laying off people, but we have to think about what certain technologies we're going to use, right? Uh, the other part is probably everybody's talking right now about, um, you know, databases and, and uh, data mining, uh, you know, blockchain technologies and, and all yeah, of that. All that's of these a good one. <laughs> new concepts coming over. How do we integrate them in the in the in the industry itself without losing um, the spirit out of it? You know, mm -hmm. um, the, the third thing is like when we think about implementation of technologies, unless you have a commercial structure that would allow these 
new investments, uh, you know, venture capital investments to come over and add value and realize like, you know, additional oil that is being produced or incentivized to be done, then, you know, the private equity investors, the venture capital investors, they will look at you within one to two years period of time and say, Harry, where is my dividends? <laughs> you know, where is my... Takes uh, longer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, three to five times your EBITDA value that, you know, I invested in. And, and, and that's, again, that's a very... Uh, interesting dilemma. We need to educate the banking industry, the finance industry. Um, that is going to take longer. Uh, we're not uh, we're not a consumer based industry here. You know, we we don't sell, for example, um, you know, phones, iPads. You know, you know. Uh, <laughs> don't don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm not uh, against that, but we we're not <laughs> in a consumer based industry here. So. We are working with um, with with that with, with the, what I would describe more of like regulators, regardless yeah. if they are the government or regardless if it is like a county or regardless if it is like a certain country as well. If we're we're uh, we're operating in, so you know the industry by itself is a little bit specific. Uh, the first thing that we need to look at is think about the immediate quick wins and start deploying certain capital in it, look mm -hmm. into the longer term and start investing in it as well, you know? And it, it's very interesting because each and every country, not even region, has its own specific nature. Um, yes. You know, when you look down into Africa and you wanna invest in renewables and where they don't have any form of energy and they have oil and gas resources, it doesn't make sense in one way or another, right? Exactly. So, so, you know, you have to think about where are you in, in terms of like maturity uh, in, in terms of your segment and sectors and then complement that. So we understand to May's point earlier that enhanced oil recovery, that is a big topic across Middle Eastern countries and honestly really outside of the U.S. because of the conventional assets. However, my argument coming back, you're correct. The technology has been there for 60 years. It's nothing new. Where I come with issue is that most of it has stayed in the laboratory. We don't see a lot of people actually go out and successfully implement because quite frankly, there's no incentive to implement. How do we change that? Because it really shouldn't be labeled as enhanced oil recovery, tertiary recovery. It should be reservoir development planning. Uh, I think... We were we were talking about this offline, me and Ahmed, and it's okay. uh, it's a very interesting topic, you know. Give me some so insider guess, trading here. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you know the one on one in reservoir engineering that you learn back into the school if you're a reservoir engineer is you don't need until the field is already mature, so you start the EOR. You have to start early on. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to start in the beginning of the life of the field so you can maximize the recovered oil. And uh, actually, the reservoir performance becomes even much better if you integrate that with your um, development plan. Absolutely mm -hmm. said by you, Kathleen. So um, the major thing that has been happening, and I think there was no incentive uh, other than the U.S. to go for the big EOR projects is probably for three reasons. Uh, the first reason is, is really coming into the structure of 
are these projects are really commercial or they're not commercial in terms is the oil prices is, is really helpful so you can produce uh, that amount of oil like if your cost uh, for a barrel of oil is eight dollars do you want it to to be like uh, 25 or 30 dollars right now with the current price squeeze or not so <laughs> The, the challenge is there was so much of cheap oil that is already existing that people thought, well, let's go for the primary recovery, may, maybe a little bit of the improved um, uh, enhanced oil recovery using the electrical submersible pumps or gas injection or gas lift and, and doing all of that. But they forgot that, you know, in the 101 in the industry, in the engineering part, you have to start early on. So the first thing is basically an obstacle which is related to the price fluctuation. The other thing uh, which is important, there is no incentive for any of the pioneer in the EOR industry to come over and say, if I produce that much of uh, barrels of oil equivalent, which is um, going to be additional, he or she going to be incentivized. So the commercial structure um, within the uh, existing contracts, either production sharing or service agreements, or in some areas where, uh, you know, the oil and gas industry is looked at as the wealth of the country and you can't have like uh, international small players to, to be operators that can be, you know, contractors, but they can't be operators. So there is no incentive for them whatsoever to come and, uh, and implement these projects. The third thing is probably the cost of material and the availability of material. Uh, like when we're talking about the chemical ER, you know, where's the source of the chemical coming from? Is it China? Is it, you know, somewhere else? The polymer, the polymer industry by itself has been really undergoing a lot of development. But again, you know, they're still they're struggling to have a successful um, polymer, um, you know, uh, project that is in the worldwide, you know, the chemical has been proven, but when it comes into the polymer, there is a lot of struggle. Well, you, you know, about what's funny about that is I actually heard that there was one project that was like perfectly formulated in the lab. And then they went to take it to the field and they said, hold on, where do we get our water from? And because exactly. you sit and talk, you can't even implement the thing. You have no water line. <laughs> Exactly. And, and, and the industry is going to suffer when it comes in, uh, when we're talking about, for example, even the gas injection, if you're talking about injecting nat natural gas, that's mm -hmm. already a commodity that is really scary in some countries. If yeah. you're talking about CO2 source, CO2 is not available in some of the, uh, the countries. So the struggle also is to look at, um, you know, the feedstock or the material cost or what are you going to use? to implement the ER, is it available or not? So having these three uh, factors combined, that let the ER industry falling behind in one way or another, uh, and let a lot of, um, I would say, the industry leaders chasing exploration, where they have like the zero and one binary code, you can find oil or you don't find oil, mm -hmm. rather than really hitting in, well, wait a minute, we know that there are some reserves, we just need to take it out of the ground and produce it. Um, so if, if no change happens in the commercial structure, I'm afraid that this is a dilemma that we will continue talking about for a long period of time. But, yeah. you know, unless somebody comes in and look and puts like a commercial 
structure that is feasible. And again, going to Ahmed's point, collaboration between countries. You know, if, if you have a CO2 uh, source that you can use in your oil field, and you can't you can't get it to your own country, then definitely you can't implement CO two injection. So it, it just needs a little bit of thinking outside the box here. I completely agree. Now, Ahmed have mentioned a very interesting point with respect to the renewable industry. Uh, the renewable industry up to now is not really making money to investors. Uh, and and for um, for a certain extent in the Middle East is more specific because it's because of the subsidies, um, and and still nobody figures out: Are you selling energy? Uh, you know, how are you going to price it? Um, although the industry have developed, you know, in, in you know substantially in the last thirty years, but yeah, still again, um, it's very cheap to install. But again, what happens afterwards? You know. Um, so I guess that's that's the thing, you know, I can't just tell you, you know, we should go on and invest everybody right now in technology development because the market will be oversaturated, we'll lose the other part of, of the value chain. I think, yeah. first of all, everybody should think about their risk appetite in terms of country exposure. The second thing is they look into the value chain within each and every individual geographical focus and say, well, I want to have a portfolio of investment in, in this part. I want to be exposed probably, maybe you want to be exposed to price, um, you know, oil prices fluctuation. It's not a bad thing sometimes. Um, and basically hedge yourself with uh, some investments that are more of, um, I would say, the future uh, of the business. I love that. You hit on so many good points there from Bitcoin mining through flaring to, you know, looking at levelized costs. And that's the trick, like you said, with renewables is people look at the levelized cost, but that's a normalized cost. So really, where are you getting your money? Where is your investment coming back? Um, but one of the things that y'all have a lot of perspective on in this in this arena is how the different company or countries are interacting and what they're chasing. So you mentioned Africa, of course. Hey, stay poor in this village until you can afford a wind farm. That argument doesn't really fly. <laughs> but in terms of what you're seeing in the Middle East, what you're seeing across Saudi, because everybody over here, when they think OPEC, they think Saudi. You know, what are you seeing from the interactions and what's really driving the communications across borderlines uh, for where we're headed next? Yeah, the, the, the focus will be on making sure that they meet the quotas, the cuts that they agreed upon, just to make sure that there is a market stability, a price that is good enough for the countries to keep running their, their budgets and their business and also lucrative enough for buyers to keep consuming. Mm -hmm. And I think the agreement of AVIC Plus uh, that was just extended recently um, is, is the guideline for that. So countries now are focusing on just making sure that nobody, uh, you know, undercuts or nobody goes around and sells more oil than what is agreed upon the time being. But don't that's we all do discussion. that? Don't we all do that? <laughs> don't we all undercut each other and that's why we're in this perpetual hell? It is. It is. The, 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 yeah. the oil... <laughs> <laughs> That's the funny part of the oil industry, you know, it's, you cannot monopolize it, although in one way or another, and don't get it wrong, somehow the regulation and cooperation will help stabilize the prices for the benefit of everybody. And funny enough, the most stable 
uh, area of, you know, the, the most, uh, sorry, most stable era of oil prices were during the Rockefeller time back in the 1800s when they managed this full chain. I'm not saying that monopoly is good, but I'm saying is that some coordination and cooperation amongst all the players will help everybody ease out because all these spikes ups and down is happening because of this people coming in flooding the market prices crash they go out then there is a short a short uh, a short investment which will lead to a squeeze in the markets in the future oil prices go up people come in again and you know the cycle continues and go on yeah so as we're wrapping up here one of the things I'm very curious about is the lessons learned. Again, the United States were the first to admit that the most important thing to the United States is the United States. <laughs> but because we have this geopolitical push back and forth, and it is going to make our cycles much more volatile. I think we've already recognized that in 2020. What do we need to understand? What do regions, countries, you know, we've got this chase for, we've got the petrodollar that backs up our industry, the agreement yeah. from the 70s, but then we've got China coming in trying to unseat that. So what do we need to understand better, to Ahmed's point, about uh, these long-term stabilization tactics that they did exist at one point, not saying monopolies are good, but there, we've got to have some stability here. So what is y'all's perspective on the lessons learned across global interactions? You know, I could, I could basically start from um, the terminology that we kept hearing for the last 18 months, which is we are under a price war. So, yeah. you know, th here, here, is, here is where we've used the commodity and we use it as a weapon of war. And that's the, the most politicized way of, of looking into the industry. Again, um, in one way or another, it has to be looked at in terms of collaboration. We all need to produce uh, you know, oil, but we need to produce it cheaper. We either need to have a higher price or a higher quantity so we can make it up, right? So if we all cut back in terms of production, it's not for the benefit of anybody here. Mm -mm. Um, there is um, the industry by itself as well has been um, undergoing what I would say interesting development in the way that they classify their reserves, uh, they classify their resources. It became more of um, a marketing tool, uh, more of something that you want to tell your investors, even yep. if you are like a big um, international player, you don't want to report that there is a decrease or increase in your reserves or your, um, you know, reserves value because it's like all those rating. buzzwords, optimize, yeah, you know, big data, they sound great. They look flashy, but what do they mean? <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, unless you're able to monetize that value by, um, you know, increasing your production or being able to uh, reduce your cost and then you can you know you can produce the same barrels of oil or gas but you produce them cheaper mm -hmm. and then you're able to compete um, but again I think the main question is do you really uh, do we really think if the industry is fragmented still uh, is there room for like integration probably it's um, it's a combination of both because 
Um, you know, the price war in one way or another is driving the major oil and gas uh, companies, the national and the international, to reshape their own plans and thinking. Um, it's also creating that opportunity for integration and the integration by itself will bring in certain values. So I'm not sure uh, if we were going to say we need to eliminate that completely, but there has to be like, and they've discussed that many times in the OPEC side, is there like a price that will satisfy everybody? And I guess, you know, the leaders will never agree on that. You know, nobody is going to say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with the $50 uh, price uh, because everybody's thinking about their profit margins and where yeah. another. So, 100%. So, <laughs> Me too. So, <laughs> and, 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 and that's a very challenging thing, uh, Kathleen, because, um, you know, uh, everybody would think, do I need to survive or I need to save the others? And it's just like when you're in the airplane they tell you to put the oxygen mask first and then save the others so everybody will think oh you know i want to i want to save myself first i want to survive yeah. and then think about uh if there is an integration that happens in the industry but again the lessons learned in in summary for me uh between uh what i would say north america and the middle east i guess um the thing is this industry is going to continue, whether we like it or not, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and uh, suddenly saying, you know, uh, every three or four years, hey, we need to reshuffle our focus from it and, and do something else and then come back to it again. It's more of creating that interruption. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we need is to pause, uh, look for areas of integration, look of areas that we can add more of uh, diversity, even in terms of a value chain. And, and maybe it's also in one way or another, it creates an opportunity for newcomers and it creates an opportunity for people who wants to leave it and, and probably, um, go into another industry. So, um, I guess what we need to look at is, is more of a longer term. That's what's, um, that's probably what kept the Middle East to go and continue in, in the oil and gas industry as a takeaway. Um, you, you know, you can't reshape your, you know, hey, we want to be part of COP21 and uh, the other day we're not part of COP21, we have to decide <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and stick with it, you know, make a decision and stick with it and, and, and start um, doing things in more of a rationalized manner rather than being reactive. That's my, my takeaway on that. Very well said, May. Uh, from from my side, I think there is there are always two uh, two views that you look at it. First of all, I don't think that we are an industry that learns very much from lessons learned in the past because we keep doing the same things. You know, very we keep true. going reverting to 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 the same things that will create problems in the future. However, if there is one thing that I think should be focused on is that there should be. A global effort from all the companies and the, the, the stakeholders in the industry to deal with the challenges that the industry is faced with especially carbon emissions and, and uh, greenhouse emissions this is now is basically what's making it less advantageous in terms of usage and you know and all the all the movements in the world right now whether it's from the activists in the environmental side or from banks and investors 
partly so because of the greenhouse emissions and partly so now because of the cyclicality uh, in oil prices. The latest research shows that many oil companies did not make any profits or any competitive profits in the last 10 years, especially in, 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 in Northern America. So these, to, to have this global cooperation on the challenges, to deal with these challenges so that the industry overall, you know, high, uh, high uh, tide will raise all boats, Mm -hmm. Everybody wins in that. I'm not saying that, you know, go and work on price fixing and all these things, but at least let's all deal with the challenge that we, uh, that's laying ahead, uh, ahead of us, which is greenhouse, uh, greenhouse emissions. Once you take that out of the way, the industry is going to be much more competitive for the future and probably much more stable because all this uncertainty that is created right now by all these dynamics is just too much to fathom. So, yeah. It's too much of an argument. You just end up chasing your tail at some point. Guys, this has been such an interesting conversation. We really don't get to have, to your point, Ahmed, the collaboration, the what's actually happening on the geopolitical scale that is oil, because before anything else, it is geopolitical leverage. So before exactly. I let you guys go, what's a book, podcast, or other resource that has brought both of y'all value that you would recommend to someone listening? Okay, I'll, I'll start. Daniel Jurgen's books are all interesting. So starting from the prize, uh, uh, which was a very valuable resource as a start. I think crude, crude volatility for um, uh, Bob Mac, uh, Macmillan, I guess. I forgot his name. It's, it's, it's a shame to, to forget always the name of the author, but the, the name of the book is, uh, is Crude Volatility. Okay. I think it was a very valuable resource to, to revert to uh, all the time. I have it in, the, in, my, in my library and I always uh, keep reading in it every once in a while. That's awesome. I'll be sure to link those. May, what would you recommend? Uh, you know, I would recommend a book that changed my life um, three times, um, Mindset. You know, it's, 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 a, yeah, it's, it's nothing to do with the oil and gas industry. But it, 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 is, it, is, it is a very interesting book because you have to think about a fixed mindset where you have a progressive um, thinking. And I think it changed my career. It changed the way I looked into things um, to a certain extent because Ahmed keeps saying that, you know, I, I carry both uh, flags, you know, the investment sector and, and the oil and gas <laughs> sector as well. <laughs> I'm a double agent here, you know. Well, guys, thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate your perspective, your insight. I hope what you have delivered here today, someone's going to start thinking outside the box, start thinking collaboration. And honestly, how can we restructure and reface this industry? Because if anything else, I think 2020 has given us that opportunity since it's just so off the wall. So thank you both. Again, I know it's super late over in Kuwait. I look forward to more discussions here, but You've brought so much value, so thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, for hosting us. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.